Section 1 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought, and Art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Huizinga. Translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Chapter 1. The Violent Tenor of Life. Part 1. To the world, when it was half a thousand years younger, the outlines of all things seemed more clearly marked than to us. The contrast between suffering and joy, between adversity and happiness, appeared more striking. All experience had yet to the minds of men the directness and absoluteness of the pleasure and pain of child-life. Every event, every action, was still embodied in expressive and solemn forms, which raised them to the dignity of a ritual. For it was not merely the great facts of birth, marriage, and death, which, by the sacredness of the sacrament, were raised to the rank of mysteries. Incidents of less importance, like a journey, a task, a visit, were equally attended by a thousand formalities, benedictions, ceremonies, formulae. Calamities and indigence were more afflicting than at present. It was more difficult to guard against them and to find solace. Illness and health presented a more striking contrast. The cold and darkness of winter were more real evils. Honors and riches were relished with greater avidity and contrasted more vividly with surrounding misery. We at the present day can hardly understand the keenness with which a fur coat, a good fire on the hearth, a soft bed, a glass of wine were formerly enjoyed. Then again, all things in life were of a proud or cruel publicity. Lepers sounded their rattles and went about in processions. Beggars exhibited their deformity and their misery in churches. Every order and estate, every rank and profession, was distinguished by its costume. The great lords never moved about without a glorious display of arms and liveries, exciting fear and envy. Executions and other public acts of justice, hawking, marriages and funerals, were all announced by cries and processions, songs and music. The lover wore the colors of his lady, companions the emblem of their co-fraternity, parties and servants the badges or blazon of their lords. Between town and country, too, the contrast was very marked. A medieval town did not lose itself in extensive suburbs of factories and villas. Girded by its walls, it stood forth as a compact whole, bristling with innumerable turrets. However tall and threatening the houses of noblemen or merchants might be, in the aspect of the town the lofty mass of the churches always remained dominant. The contrast between silence and sound, darkness and light, like that between summer and winter, was more strongly marked than it is in our lives. The modern town hardly knows silence or darkness in their purity, nor the effect of a solitary light, 
or a single distant cry. All things presenting themselves to the mind in violent contrasts and impressive forms lent a tone of excitement and of passion to everyday life, and tended to produce that perpetual oscillation between despair and distracted joy, between cruelty and pious tenderness which characterizes life in the Middle Ages. One sound rose ceaselessly above the noises of busy life and lifted all things unto a sphere of order and serenity, the sound of bells. The bells were in daily life like good spirits, which by their familiar voices now called upon the citizens to mourn and now to rejoice, now warned them of danger, now exhorted them to piety. They were known by their names, Big Jacqueline or the Bell Roland. Everyone knew the difference in meaning of the various ways of ringing. However continuous the ringing of the bells, people would not seem to have become blunted to the effect of their sound. Throughout the famous judicial duel between two citizens of Alessian in 1455, the big bell, which was hideous to hear, says Castillon, never stopped ringing. What intoxication the pealing of the bells of all the churches and of all the monasteries in Paris must have produced, sounding from morning till evening and even during the night, when a peace was concluded or a pope elected. The frequent processions, too, were a continual source of pious agitation. When the times were evil, as they often were, Processions were seen winding along day after day for weeks on end. In 1412, daily processions were ordered in Paris to implore victory for the king who had taken up the oriflame against the Armagnacs. They lasted from May to July, and formed by ever-varying orders and corporations, going always by new roads and always carrying different relics. The burgher of Paris calls them, quote, the most touching processions in the memory of men. End quote. People looked on or followed, weeping piteously with many tears in great devotion. All went barefooted and fasting, councillors of the parliament as well as the poor citizens. Those who could afford it carried a torch or a taper. A great many small children were always among them. Poor country people of the environs of Paris came barefooted from afar to join the procession, and nearly every day the rain came down in torrents. Then there were the entries of princes, arranged with all the resources of art and luxury belonging to the age, and lastly, most frequent of all, one might almost say uninterrupted, the executions. The cruel excitement and coarse compassion raised by an execution form an important item in the spiritual food of the common people. They were spectacular plays with a moral. For horrible crimes, the law invented atrocious punishments. At Brussels, a young incendiary and murderer is placed in the center of a circle of burning faggots and straw, and made fast to a stake by means of a chain running round an iron ring. He addresses touching words to the spectators. Quote, and he so softened their hearts 
that every one burst into tears, and his death was commended as the finest that was ever seen. End quote. During the Burgundian terror in Paris in 1411, one of the victims, Monsieur Massant Dubois, being requested by the hangman, according to custom, to forgive him, is not only ready to do so with all his heart, but begs the executioner to embrace him. Quote, there was a great multitude of people who nearly all wept hot tears. End quote. When the criminals were great lords, the common people had the satisfaction of seeing rigid justice done, and at the same time finding the inconsistency of fortune exemplified more strikingly than in any sermon or picture. The magistrate took care that nothing should be wanting to the effect of the spectacle. The condemned were conducted to the scaffold, dressed in the garb of their high estate. Jean de Montague, Grand Martyr de Hôtel du the King, the victim of Jean Saint-Pierre, is placed high on a cart, preceded by two trumpeters. He wears his robe of state, hood, cloak, and hose half red and half white, and his gold spurs, which are left on the feet of the beheaded and suspended corpse. By special order of Louis XI, the head of Maitre Odeur de Debussy, who had refused a seat in the Parliament, was dug up and exhibited in the marketplace of Hesdin, covered with a scarlet hood lined with fur, quote, selon des mots de contière de parliament, with explanatory verses. Rarer than processions and executions were the sermons of itinerant preachers coming to shake people by their eloquence. The modern reader of newspapers can no longer conceive the violence of impression caused by the spoken word on an ignorant mind lacking mental food. The Franciscan friar Richard preached in Paris in 1529, during ten consecutive days. He began at five in the morning and spoke without break until ten or eleven, for the most part in the Cemetery of the Innocents. When, at the close of his tenth sermon, he announced that it was to be his last, because he had no permission to speak more, quote, great and small wept as touchingly and as bitterly as if they were watching their best friend being buried. And so did he. End quote. Thinking that he would preach once more at St. Denis on the Sunday, the people flocked thither on Saturday evening and passed the night in the open to secure good seats. Another Mennonite friar, Antoine Fradin, who the magistrate of Paris had forbidden to preach because he inveighed against the bad government, is guarded night and day in the Corlières monastery by women posted round the building, armed with ashes and stones. In all the towns where the famous Dominican preacher Vincent Ferrer is expected, the people, the magistrates, the lower clergy, and even prelates and bishops set out to greet him with joyous songs. He journeys with a numerous and ever-increasing following of adherents, who every night make a circuit of the town in procession with chants and flagellations. Officials are appointed to take charge of lodging and feeding these multitudes. A large number of priests of various religious orders accompany him everywhere to assist him in celebrating Mass and in confessing the faithful. Also several notaries to draw up on the spot 
deeds embodying the reconciliations which this holy preacher everywhere brings about his pulpit has to be protected by a fence against the pressure of the congregation which wants to kiss his hand or habit work is at a standstill all the time he preaches he rarely fails to move his auditors to tears when he spoke of the last judgment of hell or of the passion both he and his hearers wept so copiously that he had to suspend his sermon till the sobbing had ceased malefactors threw themselves at his feet before every one confessing their great sins one day while he was preaching he saw two persons who had been condemned to death a man and a woman being led to execution he begged to have their execution delayed had them both placed under the pulpit and went on with his sermon preaching about their sins after the sermon only some bones were found in the place they had occupied and the people were convinced that the word of the saint had consumed and saved them at the same time after olivier merlion had been preaching lenten sermons at orleans the roofs of the houses surrounding the place whence he had addressed the people had been so damaged by the spectators who had climbed on to them that the roofer sent in a bill for repairs extending over sixty-four days. The diatribes of the preachers against desoluteness and luxury produced violent excitement, which translated into action. Long before Savonarola started bonfires of vanities at Florence to the irreparable loss of art, the custom of these holocausts of articles and luxury and amusement was prevalent both in France and in Italy. At the summons of a famous preacher, men and women would hasten to bring cards, dice, finery, ornaments, and burn them with great pomp. Renunciation of the sin of vanity in this way had taken a fixed and solemn form of public manifestation. In accordance with the tendency of the age, to invent a style for everything. All this general faculty of emotions, of tears and spiritual upheavals, must be borne in mind in order to conceive fully how violent and high-strung was life at this period. Public mourning still presented the outward appearance of a general calamity. At the funeral of Charles the Seventh. The people are quite appalled on seeing the cortege of all the court dignitaries, quote, dressed in the deepest mourning, which was most pitiful to see, and because of the great sorrow and grief they exhibited for the death of their master, many tears were shed and lamentations uttered throughout the town, end quote. People were especially touched at the sight of six pages of the king mounted on horses quite covered with black velvet. One of the pages, according to a rumor, had neither eaten nor drunk for four days. Quote, and God knows what doleful and piteous plaints they made, mourning for their master. End quote. Solemnities of a political character also led to abundant weeping. An ambassador of the king of France repeatedly burst into tears while addressing a courteous harangue to Philip the Good. At the meeting of the kings of France and of England at Ardran, at the reception of the Dauphin at Brussels, at the departure of John of Combra from the court of Burgundy, all the spectators weep 
hot tears. Chastillon describes the Dauphin, the future Louis XI, during his voluntary exile in Brabant, as subject to frequent fits of weeping. Unquestionably, there is some exaggeration in these descriptions of the chroniclers. In describing the emotion caused by the addresses of the ambassadors at the Peace Congress at Rennes in 1435, Jean Germain, Bishop of Chalons, makes the auditors throw themselves on the ground, sobbing and groaning. Things, of course, did not happen thus, but thus the bishop thought fit to represent them, and the palpable exaggeration reveals a foundation of truth. As with the sentimentalists of the eighteenth century, tears were considered fine and honorable. Even nowadays, an indifferent spectator of a public procession sometimes feels himself suddenly moved to inexplicable tears. In an age filled with religious reverence for all pomp and grandeur, this propensity will appear altogether natural. A simple instance will suffice to show the high degree of irritability which distinguishes the Middle Ages from our own time. One can hardly imagine a more peaceful game than that of chess. Still like the Chanson de Guette of some centuries back, Olivier de la Marche mentions frequent quarrels arising over it, et plus sage et pire patience. A scientific historian of the Middle Ages, relying first and foremost on official documents, which rarely refer to the passions, except violence and cupidity, occasionally runs the risk of neglecting the difference of tone between the life of the expiring Middle Ages and that of our own days. Such documents would sometimes make us forget the vehement pathos of medieval life, of which the chroniclers, however defective as to material facts, always keep us in mind. In more than one respect, life had still the colors of a fairy story. That is to say, it assumed those colors in the eyes of contemporaries. The court chroniclers were men of culture, and they observed the princes, whose deeds they recorded, at close quarters. Yet even they give these records a somewhat archaic, hieratic air. The following story, told by Castellan, serves to prove this. The young Count of Charlet, the later Charles the Bold, on arriving at Gorkum in Holland, on his way from Sule, learns that his father, the Duke, has taken all his pensions and benefices from him. Thereupon he calls his whole court into his presence, down to the scullions, and in a touching speech imparts his misfortune to them, dwelling on his respect for his ill-informed father, and on his anxiety about the welfare of all his retinue. Let those who have the means to live remain with him awaiting the return of good fortune. Let the poor go away freely, and let them come back when they hear that the Count's fortune has been re-established. They will all return to their old places, and the Count will reward them for their patience. Quote, then were heard cries and sobs, and with one accord they shouted, We all, we all, my lord, will live and die with thee. End quote. Profoundly touched, Charles accepts their devotion, quote, Well then, stay and suffer, and I will suffer for you, rather than that you should be in want. End quote. The nobles then come and offer him what they possess, quote, 
one saying, I have a thousand, another ten thousand. I have this, I have that to place at thy service, and I am ready to share all that may befall thee. And in this way everything went on as usual, and there was never a hen the less in the kitchen. Clearly this story has been more or less touched up. What interests us is that Castillan sees the prince and his court in the epic guise of a popular ballad. If this is a literary man's conception, how brilliant must royal life have appeared, when displayed in almost magic splendor to the naive imagination of the uneducated. Although in reality the mechanism of government had already assumed rather complicated forms, the popular mind pictures it in simple and fixed figures. The current political ideas are those of the Old Testament, of the Romant and the Ballad. The kings of the time are reduced to a certain number of types, every one of which corresponds more or less to a literary motif. There is the wise and just prince, the prince deceived by evil counsellors, the prince who avenges the honour of his family, the unfortunate prince to whom his servants remain faithful. In the mind of the people, political questions are reduced to stories of adventure. Philip the Good knew the political language which the people understands. To convince the Hollanders and Frisians that he was perfectly able to conquer the bishopric of Utrecht, he exhibits during the festivities of the Hague in 1456 precious plate to the value of 30,000 silver marks. Everybody may come and look at it. Amongst other things, 200,000 gold lions have been brought from Lila contained in two chests, which every one may try to lift up. The demonstration of the solvency of the state took the form of an entertainment at a fair. Often we find a fantastic element in the life of princes which reminds us of the caliph of the Arabian Nights. Charles the Sixth, disguised and mounted with a friend on a single horse, witnesses the entrance of his betrothed and is knocked about in the crowd by petty constables. Philip the Good, whom the physicians ordered to have his head shaved, issued a command to all the nobles to do likewise, and charges Pierre de Hagenbach with the cropping of any whom he finds recalcitrant. In the midst of coolly calculated enterprises, princes sometimes act with an impetuous temerity, which endangers their life and their policy. Edward III does not hesitate to expose his life and that of the Prince of Wales in order to capture some Spanish merchantmen in revenge for deeds of piracy. Philip the Good, interrupts the most serious political business to make the dangerous crossing from Rotterdam to Sluys for the sake of a mere whim. On another occasion, mad with rage in consequence of a quarrel with his son, he leaves Brussels in the night alone and loses his way in the woods. The knight Philippe Paul, to whom fell the delicate task of pacifying him on his return, lights upon the happy phrase, Good day, my liege, good day, and what is this? Art thou playing King Arthur now, or Sir Lancelot? The custom of princes in the fifteenth century, frequently to seek counsel in political matters from ecstatic preachers and great visionaries, maintained a kind of religious tension in state affairs 
which at any moment might manifest itself in decisions of a totally unexpected character. At the end of the fourteenth century and at the beginning of the fifteenth, the political stage of the kingdoms of Europe was so crowded with fierce and tragic conflicts that the peoples could not help seeing all that regards royalty as a succession of sanguinary and romantic events. In England, King Richard II dethroned and next secretly murdered, where nearly at the same time the highest monarch in Christendom, his brother-in-law Wenzel, King of the Romans, is deposed by the electors. In France, a mad king, and soon afterwards fierce party strife, openly breaking out with the appalling murder of Louis of Orléans in 1407, and indefinitely prolonged by the retaliation of 1419, when Jean saint is murdered in Montereau. With their endless train of hostility and vengeance, these two murders have given to the history of France during a whole century a somber tone of hatred. For the contemporary mind cannot help seeing all the national misfortunes which the struggle of the houses of Orléans and Burgundy was to unchain, in the light of that sole dramatic motive of princely vengeance. It finds no explanation for historic events save in personal quarrels and motives of passion. In addition to all these evils came the increasing obsession of the Turkish peril and the still vivid recollection of the catastrophe of Nicopolis in 1396, where a reckless attempt to save Christendom had ended in the wholesale slaughter of French chivalry. Lastly, the great schism of the West had lasted already for a quarter of a century, unsettling all notions about the stability of the church, dividing every land and community. Two, soon three, claimants contending for the papacy. One of them, the obstinate Aragonese Peter of Luna, or Benedict Thirteenth, was commonly called in France Le Pape de la Lune. What can an ignorant populace have imagined when hearing such a name? The familiar image of fortune's wheel from which kings are falling with their crowns and their scepters took a living shape in the person of many an expelled prince roaming from court to court without means, but full of projects and still decked with the splendor of the marvelous east whence he had fled. The king of Armenia, the king of Cyprus, before long the emperor of Constantinople. It is not surprising that the people of Paris should have believed in the tale of the gypsies who presented themselves in 1427. A duke and a count and ten men all on horseback, while others to the number of 120 had stayed outside the town. They came from Egypt, they said. The Pope had ordered them, by way of penance for their apostasy, to wander about for seven years without sleeping in a bed. There had been twelve hundred of them, but their king, their queen, and all the others had died on the way. As a mitigation, the Pope had ordered that every bishop and abbot was to give them ten pounds tournois. The people of Paris came in great numbers to see them and have their fortunes told by women who eased them of their money by magic art or in other ways. The inconsistency of the fortune of princes was strikingly embodied in the person of King René. Having aspired to the crowns of Hungary, of Sicily, and of Jerusalem, he had lost all his opportunities and reaped nothing but a series of defeats, 
imprisonments checkered by perilous escapes. The royal poet, a lover of the arts, consoled himself for all his disappointments in his estates in Anjou and in Provence. His cruel fate had not cured him of his predilection for pastoral enjoyment. He had seen all his children die but one, a daughter for whom was reserved a fate even harder than his own. Married at sixteen to an imbecile bigot, Henry the Sixth of England, Margaret of Anjou, full of wit, ambition, and passion, after living for many years in that hell of hatred and of persecution, the English court, lost her crown when the quarrel between York and Lancaster had last broke out into civil war. Having found refuge, after many dangers and suffering, at the court of Burgundy, she told Castellon the story of her adventures, how she had been forced to commit herself and her young son to the mercy of a robber, how at mass she had had to ask a Scotch archer a penny for her offering, quote, who reluctantly and with regret took a groat Scots for her out of his purse and lent it to her, end quote. The good historiographer, moved by so much misfortune, dedicated to her a certain little treatise on fortune, based on its inconsistency and deceptive nature, which entitled Le Temple de Bossas. He could not guess that still graver calamities were in store for the unfortunate queen. At the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471, the fortunes of Lancaster went down forever. Her only son perished there, probably slaughtered after the battle. Her husband was secretly murdered. She herself was imprisoned in the Tower of London, where she remained for five years, to be at last given up by Edward the Fourth to Louis the Eleventh, who made her renounce her father's inheritance as the price of her liberty. End of chapter one, part one.